Welcome to Risk Watch, a podcast brought to you by VCheck Global that sheds light on emerging compliance and due diligence issues affecting private market investors, financial institutions, and global corporations. I'm your host, Alex Soren. In this episode of the podcast, David Rybicki and Neil Smith of the law firm K&L Gates discuss the new Department of Justice Safe Harbor Policy for Voluntary Self-Disclosure Made in Connection with M&A. We cover a number of different areas in our talk, including concerns that need to be top of mind for acquirers, key industries to watch, and the growing importance of deeper due diligence, both pre- and post-deal. You can find a link in the show notes to David and Neil's contact information, as well as a U.S. policy and regulatory alert on the Safe Harbor policy that the firm published on their website. I had a great time talking with them, and I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Alex, for having us. So over the past few years, I wanted to get y'all's take on how you've seen the DOJ's attitude to corporate enforcement change, and also its priorities evolve in terms of like what they're seeking to prevent, what are they seeking to protect against when it comes to M&A in particular. Alex, we really saw this administration's priorities explained most explicitly in September 2022 with a memorandum from the Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monaco. The memo discussed the administration's priorities emphasizing individual accountability, which is, which is something that you see when administrations tend to change from Republican to Democratic administrations, and the mechanism by which companies can obtain cooperation credit in the context of individual accountability. Basically, we're now under a standard which dictates that companies, in order to receive any credit whatsoever, have to disclose all relevant non-privileged information about misconduct, including information pertaining to all corporate exam. This is a sea change from the standard that was applied in the previous administration, and that was explained in a memo issued by the former DAG, Rod Rosenstein. So it's a much more stringent standard, which restricts the circumstances under which companies can obtain cooperation credit and essentially rules out partial credit. So you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound um, with this administration. There's also uh, an outsized emphasis that we saw in the Monaco memo on recidivism and a holistic inquiry, essentially a holistic view of the company's entire track record. So the Monaco memo explains that when DOJ is considering a corporate resolution, it's going to consider the company's record of past misconduct of many different shapes and sizes. So that's criminal, civil, regulatory, domestic, international. It seems that there's really no point at which a company can feel comfortable that any potential past problems are really concretely in the rearview mirror, so to speak. And I know Neil has perspectives on this as well. When you have enforcement agencies who are emphasizing this recidivism analysis and looking at individual accountability under very stringent cooperation standards, you begin to change the incentive structure for companies with respect to self-disclosure. And in the M&A context, that's the entire purpose of the safe harbor policy, right? To incentivize companies rooting out potential misconduct, disclosing it, and then remediating. And so the Deputy Attorney General has often talked about carrots and sticks. We saw a lot of sticks at the beginning of the administration, but I think the safe harbor policy is more of a carrot now because you do have some concrete incentives to self-disclosure against the backdrop of an environment that was not all that favorable until recently, perhaps. I would add to that to say, you know, as I think we'll talk about it, it still might not be favorable to self-disclose for for reasons we can get into. But I agree with David on this, and I see the trend 
towards incentivizing self-disclosure goes hand in hand with the evolving nature of the sophisticated international fraud or domestic fraud and violations that we see. It's harder and harder to investigate these things. It's harder and harder to investigate communications between conspirators when it's on ephemeral messaging. It's harder and harder to track the money when it goes through jurisdictions where the U.S., cannot always see the financial transactions. And so this policy to me and all of these incentivized self-disclosure policies, whether it's DOJ or SEC or CFTC, sort of go hand in hand with that reality, which is the government is leaning on the gatekeepers. In this case, for this policy, it would be an acquiring U.S. company to assist them because there are circumstances where they're never going to be able to uncover this without that assistance. And so that's where the carrot comes in. You get to buy yourself some closure, you get to put this thing to bed, but you also have to bring it to our attention. And the calculus companies have to enter into is, what if we don't? Is the Department of Justice ever going to find out about this conduct that took place at this subsidiary that we bought? And that's a significant risk analysis that companies and their counsel have to take. It's really interesting. And from y'all's perspective, what prompted the new policy? I think the incentivization that I talked about a few minutes ago is a big part of it. Carrots and sticks, right? It can't be all downside. You have to make it attractive enough, as Neil said, for companies that may be willing to roll the dice and risk DOJ finding out about conduct that might be quite difficult for them in an unassisted fashion to find out about. So how good are the carrots, really? And there are some things built into the policy that we haven't seen previously that were never formally part of any previous DOJ corporate enforcement policy or part of the the various pronouncements that have collectively guided DOJ's view of compliance programs and corporate enforcement. I think the motivation was largely to get companies to do, as Neil said, what is sometimes very difficult for regulators and enforcement agencies to do. I think this might be illustrated in part just by the statistics. DOJ's, the number of corporate enforcement actions brought by the department is at a relatively low ebb right now. There are around 100 corporate enforcement matters brought in 2022. And these are among the the least active years in recent memory. So I think part of the policy is to get people, to get companies to, to come forward against what I said a couple minutes ago is kind of a hostile environment with respect to the calculus that companies have to make in terms of whether or not they're going to voluntarily self-disclose. So when I was reading Dag Monaco's comments, the announcement of the new policy, I was seeing a lot of language about national security concerns. And depending on what law firm alert you're looking at that's talking about this, you'll see other things as well. So I've seen a lot of emphasis also on the FCPA. But I wanted to hear from you all, what are the concerns that need to be top of mind for acquirers? And what are the primary industries that we should be watching? There's basically two parts to the safe harbor policy. And I think something that the acquiring company in the M&A transaction needs to be mindful of is the timing. You're on a six-month clock for your disclosure, right? So that means either six months prior to completion of the deal or post-acquisition six months after the deal is completed. So you've you've got a year either on the, the front end or the back end collectively to make a disclosure. And then you also, the second half of the equation is remediating any problems. So timing is always going to be a major factor here. Keeping in mind that Pre-acquisition due diligence is hard for 
various dynamics that are inherent in deals. There is sometimes insufficient resources or insufficient desire to do the kind of deep dive diligence that you'd want to do on a target company. And so practically speaking, a lot of the, the diligence work, I think what we'll see in practice is you're going to see the diligence work being done post-acquisition. You're going to see a very intense drive to have the target company's compliance function and structures integrated with the acquiring company structures in an effort to make sure that if there are any issues, that those issues are are discovered in a timely fashion so that you can still enjoy that six-month safe harbor period. The national security nexus is significant because there are a lot of I think companies that are in spaces such as you know strategic technologies, cutting edge technology, AI, microelectronics, these kinds of sensitive industries, companies that have potentially dual use technology um, that may not necessarily have been thinking about attention from DOJ or other regulators, but now certainly are given the new emphasis from DOJ. So anytime you're talking about any of those kinds of technologies, I think those are going to be squarely within the focus of DOJ uh, under this policy. And keep in mind that if you're talking about some of these acute national security concerns, you don't you don't enjoy the six-month safe harbor. If you're dealing with an acute national security concern, DOJ is going to expect the company to come forward immediately upon discovery for obvious reasons. That's a slight twist in terms of what the, the government's expectations are, which will make it a little bit more challenging for companies in the space to, to comply with policy. And I think to your point, Alex, it's the focus on bigger concerns such as national security, terrorist financing, uh, sanctions controls. It makes sense for the department, I think, right? Because those are violations that those are violations of U.S. law and or some other sanctions regime, regardless of whether the company you're acquiring is a U.S. entity or not. If you're selling in, into Iran or, or certain sales of oil and gas into Russia, et cetera, or other places or semi, you know, the semiconductor industry where the U.S. government is, has imposed strict regulations recently. That's the type of thing that a policy like this could apply to. And you can see that there's some of those, if you're the acquiring company, you look at some of that, if you uncover something like that, a sanctions violation, it's sort of a fairly bright line test. In the FCPA context, I think it's a little bit more complicated. You know, not every bribe paid by a foreign company that you may or be acquiring is an FCPA violation. If you're buying, a, for example, a South African company that has no ties to the U.S. and pays in South Africa with no dollar piece of the transaction bribes to South African officials, and a U.S. company acquires that entity, there's no FCPA violation there because the underlying misconduct was not a violation of the FCPA because the underlying entity was not a U.S. entity or regulated entity. So that is not really right for self-disclosure here because you didn't find an FCPA violation. You found a violation of South African law, potentially, in that scenario, whereas a sanctions violation or a national security concern is broader and there's less room to sort of think about, is this really a violation of U.S. law there? And so that's why I think the focus was put on those aspects of it here. That might be something that's, that wasn't always thought of in due diligence, but now should be. One thing I found was particularly noteworthy when I was reading through the DOJ's comments on this was that it seemed to me that the language they used about conducting due diligence, conducting deep dive due diligence, there was a, a lot more emphasis on it here than I've seen in other places. So like in the past, when you're looking at compliance guidance or even FCPA guidance and third-party management guidance, there's a lot more language about like a best effort approach, a risk-based approach, which there is some of that here from what I saw. But 
there is definitely still an emphasis and, and a use of language on extensive due diligence that I hadn't seen before. What was your take on that? It's not going to be easy necessarily to get the declination under the policy. I mean, it's not a free pass. There's a lot of work that the company will have to do, and DOJ has enormous discretion in applying the fairly broad contours of the policy. So you've got your six-month window for disclosure. You've got your one-year window for remediation. DOJ has indicated we'll give you some flexibility with respect to those timelines. Not every deal is created equally, etc. But the company is still going to have to engage in a very rigorous internal investigation. They have to conduct a root cause analysis. They have to remediate. And all of this is on a fairly tight timeline. And even after you do all of that, DOJ may decide, for whatever reason, that the declination isn't appropriate under these circumstances. There's a lot of risk deciding to go in, even when you do have certain assurances from the government, as you do the carrots under this policy. One relates to the, the recidivism point that I made a few minutes ago. If you disclose misconduct under the safe harbor policy, DOJ tells us that they're not going to factor that into the recidivism analysis. That said, you're still de- you're still dealing with their recidivism policy, which is it's an uphill climb in a lot of respects. If you're a company and you have a prior and DPA or declination, or there's a history there that may DOJ may view as problematic. You know, DOJ is also trying to assure acquiring companies to come forward by telling them that any aggravating factors that could be present, like high level executive involvement pervasiveness, longstanding conduct, that kind of thing. It's not going to affect your ability to receive the declination. But those are still background factors that may adversely influence DOJ's view of the company as a whole. So when you make the decision to self-disclose, it's something that the company has to look at against the backdrop of these other policies, even though there are some sweeteners that DOJ has put in the safe harbor policy for an acquiring company. So it's still, it's still a pretty complicated field for a company to negotiate, in my view. And uh, Neil, do you have anything to add on that point? I totally agree. And, and the decision to self-report and self-disclose under the policy and before the policy is a very complicated one. Just to touch on something you mentioned earlier on the, the risk-based M&A procedures here, too. I think that's a factor that companies need to weigh as well, right? You need to, can't look at, if you're acquiring another multinational company or, or large company, you can't look at every single line item on their balance sheet or every single entry in their ledger. So you have to conduct risk-based due diligence as well. And I think to the points we were talking about earlier, you need to focus that on high-risk jurisdictions, high-risk industries, potential sanctions issues, that this should be seen as a guide for companies to how they structure some of their due diligence in the M&A context, right? What are we looking at? Where should we be looking based on our own risk analysis and doing that usually in conjunction with counsel who can assess the risks, legal sanctions, otherwise, not just business risks, but the you know risks of potentially violations of U.S. law. And how do we go about conducting our due diligence in the M&A context so that we're comprehensive enough so that if there is something there that we, that we do find it and then you can make a decision. Uh, under the policy, are we self-disclosing or not? Do we think this is a violation that requires self-disclosure? If so, you know, what's our plan to do so? You know, those are all complicated issues and concerns that companies have to think about every time they enter this arena, uh, and in particular when you're dealing with acquisitions overseas. 
an understanding that you know there's pre-deal due diligence, like pre-acquisition diligence and post-transaction due diligence, where it seems like a lot of these thornier issues might be uncovered. But from your perspective, how important is the pre-acquisition due diligence process? And have you seen any sort of shift in a company's mindset in terms of going deeper and broader on the pre-acquisition diligence side rather than waiting to find something later down the road? I think that's very likely going to be one of the results of the policy. You're going to have certain companies who want a deeper dive. They want a more robust pre-acquisition posture than has historically been the case and open on a lot of deals for the timing issues I mentioned previously, the resourcing issues I mentioned previously. But I think you'll see that on the front end. Practically speaking, though, there are just certain things that you cannot do pre-acquisition for lots of reasons that have to be done after a deal is concluded. If you're dealing with international subsidiaries, acquiring an international target, you can't really turn over all the rocks, practically speaking, in a pre-acquisition posture. So you know, I think you'll probably see more activity pre-acquisition. There's just necessarily certain things that you, you have to wait on. And that's, I think, really where the rubber is going to hit the road. Where, Like I said previously, you're going to see companies that are very anxious to make sure everybody gets integrated and aligned so that we can preserve this opportunity if we make a decision that, that we're going to come in. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that the post-acquisition due diligence is going to be just as important here. And that's probably, you know, putting myself in the shoes of Dag Monaco, maybe that's why they, they, you know, DOJ decided for six months. That's not a lot of time, however, depending on the size of the acquisition. So you're going to be conducting due diligence throughout, right? Both before the acquisition, where you're more limited, as David said, and then after the acquisition, you bought it, you own it, right? Like, so now it's yours. And, and I think you're going to see an increased emphasis by companies to get in there and do those immediate health and safety checks to make sure, especially, and again, this is a risk-based, you can't look at everything, but the high-risk stuff, the stuff that is more likely to draw government scrutiny, where the FCPA risk is bigger, where the sanctions, export-import risks are bigger, post-acquisition due diligence is going to be imperative, and, you're not, and you just don't have a lot of time. So you've got to get on that on day one. So to wrap up here, um, I wanted to get y'all's take on what's most concerning to you from a geopolitical standpoint when it comes to M&A and these issues and the world we're living in now, because it's definitely interesting times, not just right now, but things that might be coming down the road and what we saw earlier in the year as well. I think the government has been very clear that national security is the new FCPA, right? This is what everybody is saying. And recent developments in Ukraine, the comments just the other day by AAG Olson about weapons and military technology falling into the hands of possible actors like the Russian Federation, obviously what's happening in the Middle East, these all will will motivate DOJ to even more intensely focus on this new national security emphasis that they've been um, they've been discussing. So I think that if if you're a company operating in this space, if you're a company with a nexus to some of the technologies that we've been talking about on this podcast, you need to ensure that you're thinking about these issues. You need to take a very hard look at your compliance function. And if you're in a deal context, a very hard look about resourcing diligence so that you can take advantage of some of these new carrots that DOJ has offered. I will just add to that. What is a national security concern has, has evolved over the last few years, right? And everyone used to be concerned about oil, right? Oil and gas. How do we stop the flow of oil? And weapons, obviously, is one thing. But now it's also semiconductors. It's going to be artificial intelligence. It's going to be 
use of cryptocurrency. It's going to be terrorist financing using some of these various digital currencies. So there are what constitutes a national security issue just keeps growing and it's shifting as what happens in the world shifts. And we live in a globalist economy and most of the mergers and acquisitions that would where this policy would apply is not two companies in Scranton, PA, one buying the other, right? This is global U.S. companies buying another foreign entity or another global entity. And that's where all of those national security considerations really come into play, along with everything else. So that, I think, is who this is aimed at and who should be paying attention to this. And it's going to evolve as the years go on. Look, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to talk to us here. This is really interesting. And for anyone interested in in learning more, there'll be a link in the show notes to your contact information on the website, as well as the, the alert you all put out on the website as well. So thank you again and look forward to staying in touch. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having us.